Shabbat Shalom. My name is Noel, Noel Joshua Hadley, and uh, hopefully you guys know where you're at. This is the Unexpected Cosmology. Oh, <laughs> I need another drink. Hold on. <clears throat> All right. Well, you know, one of the things about being live live is that uh, I can't uh, mess up or um, cut out all my ums or my choppy voice like this right now. <laughs> Just one more minute. <clears throat> all right. Oh, well, here we go. So last week we were reading through Book of Wisdom. And of course, before that, we read through Book of Britain. There is no possible way we're going to end this book this week, and that's okay. Next week, I'm going to be starting my uh, tour portions. And we're, you know, as I mentioned before, we're rolling back uh, Deuteronomy starting in Genesis. And I'm inviting all of you to take part in this because we're going to be going through the Paleo Hebrew. Of course, you know, we're reading in the English uh, a translation from Paleo, but this is going to be very different than uh, any kind of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, a Torah text that anyone has read before. All right. So here we are in Book of Wisdom. And my voice was fine until I went live. And now I'm like, oh, like, ah, can't talk. But fun of being live. All right. Book of Wisdom. And we ended last week on Chapter 7, Duties, Obligations, and Services to Life. So we're going to be picking up in Chapter 8, which is on page 35. Let me get there for you guys. Boom. And for everyone just now joining us, Shabbat Shalom. It's good to be with you guys. And I'm really excited about starting this up on YouTube Live every single Friday night, 7 p.m. Hopefully I can make this a tradition for uh, you and your household as well. And you guys can join me as I look at different texts. And um, I'm, I'm hoping that with the starting of the Torah portions next week that I could still squeeze in book of wisdom, maybe do a little bit toward portions, a little bit of wisdom, and uh, move on from there. It'll be a learning curve. All right, chapter eight. <clears throat> this is terrible. That's like my, <laughs> I don't know what's happening. All right, <clears throat> chapter eight, respect for the rights of others. And it was funny, I had like calm, serene in my house, and right before I went live, uh, like there was a stampede upstairs and my baby was crying outside and a train was passing by and I'm like, oh boy, here we go. All right. Chapter eight. Do not enter a house other than your own uninvited. And if you have a position of power, do not use it to gain entry into the house of another. Do not enter a house when the occupier is absent, even if it is open. If at any time you are denied admittance to a house or told to go away, then depart in peace. I mean, this seems pretty straightforward. Only in the interest of justice or peace or when the safety of another demands it, should the privacy of a home be invaded. And even then, only with the greatest, even with the greatest restraint and consideration. Now, this reminds me right here of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1914, and it talks about boundary markers. And in fact, I would, from what we've read in here, I think all of this uh, lines up and agrees with the Torah. And the, the idea of a boundary marker is that you're to respect. This is talking about the actual home. You know, you don't, you know, just enter into someone's home. You don't evade it. And they'll, they'll dissect that more as we go forward. But it's the same thing with your actual 
neighbor's property. You don't move boundary markers. You respect uh, the lay of the land. However, if a house is abandoned or empty, there is no harm done if it is entered for shelter, but it should not be damaged willfully. Nothing established by the hand of man should be damaged unless it causes harm or inconvenience, which outweighs its usefulness. I think that the the idea being put forward here is that, you know, you're here in the in the American South, there's a lot of abandoned homes along the side of the Rome's, uh, roads, the, the highways and such. Now, these abandoned homes have like collapsed roofs and the found, you know, there's probably like critters living in and that kind of stuff. And, you know, foundations a little wonky. I don't know if you'd want to uh, spend a night in there. But the idea is, is that, you know, you're traveling, there is a house that is clearly abandoned and, you know, you don't know who owns it, but you need shelter for the night or something like that. It's saying, uh, there, what, what is the harm in doing that? But, you know, the idea is, is that everything in nature itself, everything is to be respected. And, and they're, they're going to talk about this later tonight, that, uh, you should be able to leave this life making this world a better place, right? For having, for the sake that you were here, it should be a better place. And that includes going into any kind of empty home. You're not going there to destroy it. Uh, that place is going to look better. Maybe you sweep the floor or something like that, right? When a guest within the house of, when, when you are a guest within the house of another, treat his family with respect and his possessions with care. If you damage anything belonging to him, make proper and full restitution. This is the law of recompense. When in the house of a friend, under no circumstances, touch a woman of his family improperly or show disrespect for her modesty by word or gesture. And we've been through this before with the, the, the Ruach HaKadosh. What is the, the unforgivable sin? Well, it's being in contempt of court with the Ruach HaKadosh. And when you understand that the Ruach HaKadosh is feminine and the mother of Yashrael, you know, you can, you can understand that you can have like uh, you and the father in heaven can not get along. I mean, you and Yahushua HaMashiach can not get along. You guys can just, you know, be at friction. And, you know, at the end of the day, though, it's kind of like guys on a basketball court, right? They get into a fight, but then like five minutes later, they're playing on the court again. They, they get out. But you mess with the woman, you know, the, the mother, the, the, the wife, the daughter. You are now outside the circle. Like you are, you're done. It's over. You don't disrespect a man's woman ever. And so it's the same thing that you are, how you treat the woman or the women in the house says a lot about how you feel about the man of the house. And it goes on to say, note the way a man conducts himself in his own. Uh, okay, so when in the house of her friend, under no circumstances, touch a woman of his family improperly or show disrespect for her modesty by word or gesture. Note the way a man conducts himself in his own home. For this reveals not only his own character, but also the character of his women folk. Uh, and really quickly on this with you know restitution is that that's what repentance is. If repent, repentance isn't just, you know, saying I'm sorry and now you need to deal with it. You need to deal with the fact that I've apologized. It's like, no, you, Yahushua talks about this of, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't want your sacrifice. He wants you first to go to the brother you have offended and make it right with him. 
full restitution. You go to those individuals. I've wronged you. How can I make this up? What can I do to fix this situation? You're actually taking on the mantle responsibility for yourself. You're saying, I screwed up. I need to fix this. It's on me. It's my bad. If a man greets you with courtesy, then answer him in the same manner. For surliness displays a weakness of character. I mean, this is just good conduct. If a man in difficulty seeks your aid, cheerfully grant him whatever assistance you can, if advice or information is yours to give. Do not withhold it when requested, but never press advice upon another. Respect the rights and dignity of the poor, for they may have little else. Those who help the poor or needy with gifts or benefits, knowing they cannot be repaid, are not without gain when their life is enlarged. Receive all comers with a happy smile and do not look downcast when giving something away. Otherwise, you set the gift at naught. So, I mean, if you're the basic idea of Yahushua HaMashiach would say, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, right? So you're not going and advertising this. Look at me. It's going to talk later tonight about the hypocrites, the people. It actually says that the hypocrites are like the most wicked of people. And it gives a specific example. These are the people who do things publicly for all to see. And they, they can't even do something private. Like in today's world, it would be... Um, you know, it'd be virtue signaling, essentially. It's like, you know, you're doing something that should be a private moment. You got your camera on and look at me, everybody, look what I'm doing. And those are the, the worst of wicked people. It actually says that in this book of hypocrites. Though freedom is the birthright of every man and one of the ideals which must be upheld, when it, when it infringes upon the freedom of another man, it ceases to be genuine. Therefore, before you talk about your own freedom or rights, consider the freedom and rights of others. For if you are truly good, their freedom and rights are the most important. I, I can think of so much propaganda with this, not this actual passage, but in, in the sense of freedom. And, you know, the last, was it, 20, 30 years of, of wars in America where we are literally going and putting up dummy governments and, you know, American-owned regimes in other countries, and we're saying that we're there to fight for freedom, and we're actually uh, enslaving other people at, really, at our, the government says it's our benefit, but it's actually not. I mean, that even that's an illusion right there. I mean, you, you take away other people's freedoms, you know, you're going to be losing your own as well. However, if others come, and this is really important here, I want to focus on this. However, if others come seeking to diminish your freedom and rights by force or legislation without conferring a benefit of equal value in return, they are to be resisted. Now, in this book as well, Book of Britain, it talks about the greatest freedom a man should have is the right to his own personal space and his family. Well, let me just finish this first before I comment on this. But bear in mind that true freedom is another of the sublime qualities unattainable on earth, where, where though man may aspire to it and must, it is, it is restricted by earthly conditions requiring service, duty, and obligations. So, all right. So the idea is, is that if, if other people's um, 
if other people are coming to take away our freedom, it is to be resisted at all costs. It's first and foremost, first and foremost saying that your freedom is um, not as necessarily important as everybody having their freedom. So if other people are lacking in freedom, it is not right for them to lack in freedom so you can have it. I mean, I'm thinking right now of like, say, Jim Crow laws. All right. But today we have something else going on. And I'm thinking of the the LGBTQ plus alien, you know, alphabet uh, agenda where you have these drag queens coming into libraries and schools and that kind of stuff. And from therein, they're using this language that uh, we are taking away their rights to exist by saying that you can't come in and disrupt my family. You can't come in and, you know, and speak this trash to my children. Um, but from our perspective, we're looking at this and going, no, you're actually infringing on my family, right? That is what you are trampling. You, you, <laughs> you have the right to go exist in your wherever you want, but you cannot come in and infringe on my family, right? You can't come in and trample it. That is to be resisted at all costs. Your family is to be guarded. Uh, that is the most sacred thing. And that is to be guarded no matter what anyone else says. And of course, it ends here by saying that you're never going to be truly free in this earth. And one of the themes that it builds up on is that uh, everything on this earth, there's a, a distinct, there's a distinction between the mortal and immortal. And we are actually like there's a dualism right now that we are both a mortal being and uh, that we have the spark of immortality. Um, and the mortality, the mortal side of us is here to build up and uh, serve or actually lead to the immortal. So as long as we are mortals, we're never going to have true freedom. All right. So if we're here just to serve the mortal self, we will never achieve the true immortality. And you'll see more of that as we go on. To be truly free, or actually says it right here, to be truly free, man must rise above his mortality and become divine. To To attain true freedom, he must travel a road of many toll gates. And at each payment is demanded from his own supply of freedom's gold. So it's saying this, this is a journey and it's going to cost you. In fact, it's going to cost you everything. Freedom like perfection, goodness, and justice is an end man must strive for, but he must also realize that its attainment lies beyond the realm of mortal limitations. Like the other divine qualities here on earth, it is best understood by contrast. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, we, I think we went over this in Book of Britain where uh, sometimes it, it, there was a great line that I love where it said, sometimes the truth can only be understood through the contrast of lies. And that, that is so true in the world we live in where we just look around, we just see lies everywhere and you can't help but banking you know, the, the truth off of that. Duty, obligation, and service are the three inescapable elements of life. They love talking about, you know, numbers of three, duty, obligation, and service. On the road to divinity, and for those of you maybe who are just tuning into this, if you missed all the rest, when it's talking about divinity, you know, I I keep repeating this over and over again. It's talking about uh, becoming, in in biblical terms, um, it's what Yahushua would say that, uh, becoming sons of Elohim. 
and uh, actually reclaiming our status as sons of Elohim. So on the road to divinity, they are, they are the three burdens which have to be carried every step of the way, duty, obligation, and service. They cannot, of course, be without purpose and so are also the great stimulants without which man cannot be sustained in his ascent. Take them away and man slides backwards towards the low ground of the brute beast which have no awareness of them. So that's a, they just talked about how uh, divine qualities here on earth are best understood by contrast. So they've just given you one, the brute beast. The brute beast doesn't have duty, doesn't have obligation, and doesn't have service. You take those away and people slide back into brute beast. And so we see that in our own culture today where the idea of duty, the idea of obligation, and the idea of service is replaced with uh, entitlement and the entitled culture. I mean, you guys have seen the videos of like rampaging, rampaging mobs in Chicago and Philadelphia and different places, uh, Southern California. And they're just entitled. Give me, give me, I deserve this. And they're like these brute beasts. That was the end of that chapter. Chapter nine, people and places to avoid, avoid all places and people which conduce to evil. Keep away from hypocrites for having a common feeling of degradation, they will congregate together and it would be unwise to be numbered among them. Hypocrites tend towards evil because they serve its purpose and therefore having an affinity with it, they turn away from what is good and just. They are hard-fisted when the poor come discreetly seeking for alms, but are open-handed when approached in a public place. Surely the hypocrite must be the lowest form. Of man or woman. So maybe, excuse me, maybe it didn't call them wicked, but it said that they are the lowest form of man and woman, a person who is all about publicly what you know he gives. Look at me, look at you know, I'm giving this person food or money right now, but they won't do it privately. If you meet a stranger who appears to be filled with extraordinary virtues or who conducts himself with grace and good manners, do not hastily conclude that this is his true character. Go to the place where he lives and is known. Note his attitude towards his family and behavior among friends and listen to what is said about him. Only then will you be in a better position to judge and to weigh him in the balances. Not so sure all of this works on social media today because you can uh, go on social media and you could get a hundred different uh, <laughs> opinions about somebody on social media. But uh, it is true. You know, you go to their house and uh, uh, that being said, you know, I know that they're <clears throat> every so often, you know, we have these people who are just mercilessly, mercilessly attacked uh, online. And I mean, there's one person, I won't say his name, but uh, I have been to his house many times. And I was shocked to see that he was like, I've never had somebody serve me uh, quite like this individual. I mean, he had such a servant's heart. And I was, you know, really amazed. And so then I read things that are said about him online. I'm going like, none of that is true. And I've been to this person's house, you know, over several consecutive years, many times and go, none of that is, you're not describing that person at all. Sometimes you have to go know the person in person before you can make those, uh, you know, uh, character uh, assessments. <clears throat> uh, let's see. 
There are many persons of a hypocritical nature who reveal their true character in one place, but put on a false display of goodness in another. If you accept a man or woman in haste and are deceived, then blame no one except yourself. The man who accepts another at his own valuation usually gets a poor bargain. Avoid those whose natures are... Oh, by the way, that's a great marriage advice for those of you who are uh, looking to find a wife or a husband. And now for a lot of us, probably a lot of my listeners are older, you know, maybe you've been married before, that kind of thing. But uh, for those of you, if, if there's anyone on the younger end who is uh, listening to this and you have not found a spouse, a, a good a good rule of thumb is to, if, if a guy is going to marry a woman, pay attention to how she treats her father and the same thing goes with the man pay attention to how he treats his mother because how he treats his mother how he treats uh, how she treats her her father are good indicators and you know that it may not be every single case but generically speaking they are good indicators of how they're going to treat you avoid those whose natures are shallow or superficial even though they be attractive and pleasant shallow streams sparkle most and weakest waters make the most pleasant sound there are many whose understanding of friendship is mere companionship, and they neither seek nor know anything deeper. Such people, people should not be cultivated beyond acquaintanceship. No man really knows another until he has seen him exposed to danger and loss. Even then, he cannot know him fully until he has seen him when tested by prosperity and success. I love that line there, that you can't truly know somebody until they've been tested by prosperity and success and also see them in loss and failure as well. I really like that. Avoid those who are seeking to benefit from your friendship. They are not for you. Friendship is a precious plant which must be nurtured in the good soil of sincerity and trust and plentifully watered with loyalty and understanding. The man who presumes too much on friendship is unworthy of it. Avoid the loose woman, for even if she is beautiful, it may be just a leer over the pit trap. Let me lower that so you guys can read that. Do not become snared by your desires or let your eyes drug your wisdom. I love <laughs> Do not let uh, or let your eyes drug your wisdom. The, ma the man who claps fire to his chest cannot escape un, un uh it should say unburned it says unbummed you leave without your bum i guess but yeah unburned and he who embraces uncleanliness will be soiled however delicately it is wrapped avoid an evil neighbor in a wicked neighborhood bearing in mind that a man is judged according to his associations there uh this this one's a little bit tough i think in in the the modern world i mean you can't really help your neighbors. Um, even if you live in the country and you have, you know, a big property, you're still going to have neighbors. You can't select those neighbors. There are many weak characters who, while not desiring to associate with the wicked or live in the neighborhood, uh, their neighborhood will do so for benefit or to advance their ends. I, I would be curious to see how this plays out because the writer is obviously observing something that was happening in his day where there were, uh, 
there were weak characters, according to this writer, who not desiring to associate with the wicked or live in their neighborhood would do so anyways to advance their ends. Uh, maybe this is talking about like, a, you know, not like a, <laughs> not like a redneck neighbor or something like that, but maybe like, um, like a really plush neighborhood, like maybe like the Beverly Hills type of neighborhood where you're actually around very degenerate uh, individuals from the pop cultural standard, but you're there because you are benefited for being a part of that. Maybe that's how it works. I'm trying to really picture uh, what the, how this would apply to us because a lot of us, we can't choose our neighborhood. I mean, we just live where we can afford to live. Unless they are prepared to freely admit, admit their weakness, they are hypocrites. This is a good one here. Avoid the places of pleasure, which attract the weak and bad characters. For if you associate with them, you cannot expect to remain uncontaminated. And here's the, here's the great line here. Bear in mind that the best person to associate with may not be the best companion. And evil places are generally more alluring than good. So the places that uh, allure mankind most often are places that are evil. And they, uh, they attract companions, right? People that uh, are not the, the best people to associate with. All right. Chapter 10, neighborly living. When a man holds views directly at variance with those of his neighbors, they are incom incompatible with harmonious living. This is very true in my own neighborhood. He then has to decide whether the right views are held by himself or by his neighbors. And if by his neighbors, he must adjust his own. I think here, this is just part of just taking ownership uh, over your, you know, recompense, right? And, and repentance. If you are truly repenting, you are taking ownership. You are realizing that, you know, you, it's not the other person, right? You're not just blame shifting all the time. You're actually recognizing, recognizing your own, your own fallacies. However, if he sees that the views held by his neighbors are wrong or corrupt or degenerate, and he fears he may fall under their influence, he must depart without delay. He must go to another place where the conduct and outlook of his neighbors will be more congenial and compatible with his. It does not matter how far he has to travel to. Now, this a lot of you listening are going to probably connect with this, uh, very much so. Uh, there's been a huge mass movement, you know, to the Midwest, and uh, it, not just in the the truth community. I mean, you know, you see the the massive exodus out of California, and I look. We, my wife and I, left California in 2015 as part of the exodus before it was even trending uh before you know the u-haul trucks were all like you know rented out and stuff but you know they're going to florida they're going to texas they're going to different places and then you know these these <laughs> these other states are like ew you know keep out of our state but um there's been a huge mass movement to like missouri and arkansas um and uh probably other areas maybe like uh i don't hear about you know Kansas as much or Ohio, but definitely all through there. And, uh, you know, to live around people of the same sentiments, the same mindset. Where there is no one ready to take command in an emergency or no one prepared to concern himself with the welfare of the neighborhood, then strive to be a man worthy of the purpose. So this is, this is great right here. So what they're going to start developing is this idea that many people, uh, 
you know, their leaders because they like the sound of their own voice. They just want to have people. It's really about getting attention, you know, having people worship you basically. But this is saying that, uh, no, it's, it's your duty to, it's basically saying, okay, those people, they shouldn't be there. But this is your duty that when you see something in need, you need to step up and just start, start doing it. You know, you're in a storm, start, you know, taking a bucket and start, you know, throwing the water out, right? That may be the best example I can give right now. You know, pick up a weapon and fight. You do this even if it means having to neglect some study of the sacred books. For the man who serves his neighborhood will serves the cause of good. So, yeah, uh, it, basically there are circumstances that come up that's going to take away from your understanding or your ability to sit down and read the Bible and spend private time with the most high. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you're just there reading the Bible and, you know, praying and that kind of stuff all the time and not uh, taking uh, when there's needs out there that need to be met, right. You're, that's a relationship that's not working anyways. Right. It, you got to have to put one aside to actually go out there and do good feed the widows, clothe the, the poor, you know, I should say feed, clothe the widows, take care of the widows, feed the hungry. You guys know the drill. As the whole man suffers for the errors of the hand or tongue, so that sounds like it's coming straight from the book of James, the epistle of James, so shall the whole congregation of the righteous suffer for the misdeeds of any one of their number. If a member commits a wrongful act, then the other shall put it right. This is so that every man shall have a feeling of responsibility towards the whole and that the good name and reputation of the whole shall not suffer for the acts of one person. I like that. Everybody, everybody, uh, basically, uh, the, the flip of this is that I have found that the, those who complain the most, who whine the most, who point out the problems of other people the most tend to be the ones who do the least you know, they're, they're not lifting a finger. They're there just to be fed constantly, right? They're that person that they just need the holy books, the sacred books. Just give me, give me, give me. And they're not actually doing anything. And this is saying, no, it's everybody's responsibility to make sure that the community is healthy. If there is leaven in the community, it's going to start expanding and it's going to start taking over the community. It is everybody's responsibility to guard that, to, you know, you can give so many uh, examples on this, how it works. It may be no great wrong if one neighbor gives comfort to another who has committed some misdeed, but if a neighbor aids another in a wrong or covers it for him, he is no better than the wrongdoer. To comfort and to condone are things far apart. So, uh, I was I was thinking about this a lot because it, it would it would be hard. I mean, I'm trying to think like what is an example of how you can comfort somebody without condoning? Because generally, when we uh, we don't condone something, we shun that person. We're like, I I don't want anything to do with you. And that happens a lot in religious communities where you're just excommunicated for having done something wrong. Instead of people coming and, you know, comforting and helping to correct the situation and to bring you back without condoning. So I like that there. To comfort and condone are things far apart. They are, don't confuse the two. Whatever the problems of your neighborhood, do not isolate yourself from them. For if they concern the welfare, welfare of others, they are your concern. 
Strive to be on friendly terms with all your neighbors. And if you fail, let it not be said that the fault lies with you. Now, some of you know that uh, in, in our, now I'm sure if I were to talk to every single person listening privately, you would all have your stories about, you know, your neighborhood, your neighbors, things you're dealing with. And, you know, we, we had a, a situation ourselves where um, it's a very, it's kind of a difficult situation to be in because we are the owners of this house. Uh, we almost have it paid off. We're going to have it paid off in the next year. Yay. And we bought it, uh, I don't know, eight years ago now. Well, the people we bought it for, uh, they live about four houses up. And they were the owners of this house and their, uh, their, their children lived in this house. The children still live up the street, you know, um, in the other house and they don't work. You know, their, their parents are enablers. They, you know, there's drugs and all sorts of things going on. And, and so the son feels that he, he has this connection to our house, which is not a good thing. And he was coming down and taking advantage of our property for a very, very long time. And we were trying to work with him. We were trying to be friendly with him, uh, very politely tell him to get his, you know, broken down. He would park a, just give you a quick example. He would park a truck in our driveway that didn't work. Like we could have towed, you know, tow truck, done a tow truck, or I should say our parking space. Uh, and we didn't, we, we, we were trying to be polite with them. We tried to work with them for like three or four months while he was trying to work on the truck and finally got to the point where he was, you know, bringing, he was doing drugs down on our property. He was coming down, stealing from us, destroying our property. I mean, it was getting worse and worse and worse and escalating. And, you know, we finally had to, uh, it finally crossed the line where we're like, all right, we're going to call the police on you and file a report. And I, I'll, you know, he was here one day and he refused to leave our property. And, um, you know, I gave him several warnings and, um, and had to call the police on him. They came and they, they wanted to arrest this guy so bad. Uh, they came and arrested him, of course, found drugs on him, that kind of stuff. And uh, it's been, you know, better ever since, but and the, the entire community is sick and tired of it. And they're trying to deal with this individual. And so, I, on one hand, I love that the community is, you know, they're all, not all, but many of them are taking responsibility and say, we are not going to let this happen to our neighborhood. And, um, you know, we tried for a long time to make it work. And it says here, and if you fail, let it not be said that the fault lies with you. And um, I think that in our case, that, uh, here I'll highlight here, I think that uh, rings true. Let it not be said the fault lies with you. If you have a neighbor in need, do not be tardy in going to his assistance. If you are not in a position to help, show that you are not indifferent to his predicament. If a neighbor falls into ill favor with the law of the land, do not set yourself up to judge him. If you cannot say anything in his favor, then hold your peace. The laws of the land and of your neighborhood should be framed towards the maintenance of peace and security. Therefore, it is your duty not only to abide by them, but also to uphold them right? Like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You, you. you can understand that these laws are put there, even if they're not the best laws, it says that in here that some of them may be bad laws. They might not be good laws, but it's you're, you're, you know, you're trying the best you can to get peace and security. 
The good laws do not need enforcing among the good, for their goodness declares itself to all. Is that an interesting thought? But oppressive laws chafe upon the neck like a yoke. The goat does not attack the lion, and sometimes bad laws have to be endured with patience for the sake of neighborly peace. So you get that? Like for all of you, we are in a uh, <laughs> yeah, we are in an HOA. So for everyone is you know, if you've ever been in an HOA, you know about bad laws. And uh, the fact of the matter is, is that some of these bad laws have to be endured with patience because. Uh, they are there because of bad neighbors. And hopefully you're not the bad neighbor. Hopefully you're the good neighbor. Those laws aren't there necessarily for you. It's for the others that we all have to endure. Yet if the entrance to uh, yet if the entrance to his hole is threatened, a mouse will not hesitate to attack an elephant. I have never seen that. Apparently that has been seen. Uh, and men are no less courageous. All right, 11, the cause and its champions. The greatest cause any man can serve is that divinely designed for him and intended to be his. It is the cause of mankind, which operates within the divine design and bears man upward to the very threshold of divinity. So let me read this again. It is the cause of mankind, which operates within the divine design and bears man upwards to the very threshold of divinity. So what it's talking about here is, again, it's, it's kind of a duality where we are mortals and we're going to die and we're going to decay, but our our souls, you know, have the spark of uh, divine design of immortality. And it's our the cause of mankind is to serve the divine design and to get us there into the threshold of divinity, right? To cross that threshold. That's our whole course, our whole purpose of life, the meaning of life. In these dark days when many gods wage war among themselves for the supremacy and man. Did you did you just catch that there? In these dark days when many gods wage war. And I'm wondering if this is a reference to the 70 Elohim uh, over humanity. And of course we see this in our own day with, uh, you know, like look at like the the... Uh, the eye of uh, Horus on the $1 bell. And we see a lot of Egyptian influence and uh, the gods of Egypt here. And I've sometimes speculated, well, what if those, um, you know, what if those gods of Egypt are actually ruling over the Egyptian government, right? So we actually see that the, the gods were, this is one of the ways that the, the Elohim, the 70 Elohim, they were given, they were given an inheritance. They were given land. They were given languages but not even the Elohim respected uh, that. They were um, they were warring against the other Elohim, taking land that wasn't theirs and so on and so forth. They weren't respecting boundary markers. They weren't um, obeying the Torah. So let me read this again. In these dark days when many gods wage war among themselves for supremacy and man is divided against himself with the many conflicting beliefs. This cause is voiceless and unchampioned, yet already the champion is conceived and lies asleep within the womb of time, awaiting the hour of birth. The champion is the good religion, now safeguarded and cherished by the devoted few during the ages of its conception. This is the religion which will someday enter the homes and hearts of a despairing humanity. Now, I am under the impression that this good religion that is being referred to is the religion uh, that lines up with Joseph of Arimathea 
And we saw this specifically in the Book of Britain, that he was called the father of the faith. He is directly credited with that. He, of course, was a disciple or Talmudim of Yehusha HaMashiach, but he was the father of the faith because he brought the, the Hebrew faith, uh, the, the holy scriptures and the interpretations of them over to Britain, and he confronted the Druids. And so this is what I, I'm thinking that they're talking about here is that it was still in its infancy. It hadn't exploded all over the world yet. This is the religion which will someday enter the homes and hearts of a despairing humanity. So they, they had the hope that this would take over the whole world. Enshrining the hopes and aspirations of mankind, it will endow them with life and meaning so that they can rise with man to the mountaintops of divinity. Only the good religion will stand forth and declare that man, given a cause sufficiently great, will be unconquerable. While other beliefs appeal for mercy or aid or beg forgiveness or seek to appease, declaring man to be weak and pitiful, the good religion will come to his aid like a life-giving elixir. Its advent will be the morning star heralding a new, brighter day. And in the light of that day, man will know himself for what he really is and will do the things he must do. He will then no longer be a child walking in darkness and ignorance wringing his hands and crying because he is so weak and wicked. He will no longer crawl in the dust of servile humility, begging for mercy or for another to bear the burden of his sins. In the light of the new dawning day, man will be shown what he really is, and the dawn heralds will declare his divinity. Then from out of the dust long gathered in the darkness, the new man will arise and stride resolutely forward towards the sunrise. Uh, well, what can I comment on there? This, when I read this, I'm reminded a lot of what probably most of us have come out of, of Christianity, uh, a, re a religion that seems to really boost these, these individuals that, um, where, where it talks about, you know, where the line here, wringing his hands and crying because he is so weak and wicked. Uh, he will no longer crawl on the deaths of servile humility, begging for mercy or for another to bear the burden of his sins. And you, you get that in, in, in Christianity where week after week after week, and you just go through this, these cyclical, you know, readings of the epistles of Paul, and you're not really learning anything. You have all these questions and you have all these people that are just, you know, they just need more grace and more grace because they're so sinful all the time. And nobody really knows how to be righteous. The only thing they're told is that Jesus is righteous. And so you just, you know, you have to kind of point at him and go, well, I believe that he's righteous. So he's going to say that I'm righteous. And then, you know, nobody really knows what the definition of righteousness and sin actually are. And, um, you know, it, it, yeah. So finally, you know, when you find, when you finally understand what righteousness is and that there are people in scripture that are said that they were righteous, like Noah was righteous, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, Yosef of Rama, the father of this faith, he was one of the few in the New Testament that was called righteous. And the idea of righteousness is that you are conforming to the standard, okay? So you're not, you're not just, you know, burdened by all your sins and you know you just you just need you know more Jesus in your life and all this kind of stuff. Now understand what I'm saying here is that when you finally recognize that the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, which we're going to start reading next week, going through the Torah portions, it actually is the law, right? It is the standard. 
Okay, this is what you do to live a righteous life. And then you have Yahushua HaMashiach who came to show us the way. That's what Book of Britain says. This is He came to show us the way, showed us how to walk, how to live. And so when you stumble and fall, you repent of that. You, you return away from it. You make recompense. And you look at how Yahushua HaMashiach is walking, and you start walking that way again. And you, you know, you, as, as it says here, you stride towards the sunrise, the, the morning star, the, the dawn of the new day. That's a, that's a reference to enlightenment. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, 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 the idea of the, the morning light that comes in, that's usually in these texts a reference to uh, enlightenment. It's, it's like a separate light from uh, the sun itself. And I actually believe that there is, I believe that there is a separate light from the sun uh, that comes through the day. And of course, uh, Yahushua HaMashiach is the light. In the days of its awakening, the good religion will require leaders, and these will need to be men of exceptional qualities. They will have to devote themselves to its cause. And in Book of Britain, if you guys remember, it's like if you if you can't rise above immorality, don't even point fingers at those who are immoral. You, you don't even have that right. Don't even do it. And so that when it's talking about men of exceptional quality, it means like you are living a life according to the standard. They will have to devote themselves to its cause without any thought of self-aggrandizement. Many men deceive themselves into thinking their desire for leadership is to benefit others. And this is what I was commenting on earlier. But in fact, they are really seeking self-esteem and power. Some cannot even see their true incentives or read their innermost thoughts because of the cloud of hypocrisy which surrounds them such men are not desirable leaders. And in fact, um, unfortunately, in the years that I've been, you know, leading a ministry and it's, of course, growing, um, I have seen, you know, these kind of people come and go. Um, and, you know, typically what happens is, is that if they're if someone is you, you can kind of in a lot of ways, I think maybe you can evaluate this yourself, that uh, if you are unhappy uh, I was telling, I was giving you another example. I was telling this to my children yesterday and my, my, my sons and I will walk into a store and there's something that they're kind of like trained to, to think. Unfortunately, they learned this in Europe. I'll give you a, a story, um, afterwards, but they, if they walk into a store and all of a sudden they start thinking, I got to buy something, I got to buy something. And then they start looking around. They don't even know what they want to buy, but then they find something in the store and they're like, I want to buy that. And I'm like, no, you know, you, you, I know you have the money for it, but you, you're just buying this on, you're kind of like buying with your eyes right now. And you need to think about this and we're going to go home. And if this is something you're still thinking about in a few days, you know, we can revisit it. Um, but I had that talk with them of saying that, um, you know, if, if you're going to, if you're going to walk into like a, like a store and you're going to, um, uh, you're going to live that kind of, you know, like this is going to make me happy. If I buy this, if I have this, it's going to make me happy. It, it, you're going to live a very disappointed life. You will never be happy and you will keep searching for things to find happiness because you're attaching happiness to this, these material things. And it's kind of like that with people who seek uh, are seeking self-esteem and power. And that's one of the ways you can evaluate yourselves. If you're just constantly unhappy all the time and you're like, I'm not, you know, you, you, you start thinking like where you want to be and you're not there yet. You're never going to be happy. You're never going to be happy. Was it one of the, one of the, maybe the Rockefellers who are like the most evil people on the earth. 
I don't want to misquote the wrong person, but I think one of the Rockefellers was once asked, um, how much money is enough? Like how much money do you need before uh, you'll be happy? And I think his answer was like $1 more. One, you know, it's always $1 more. You get that $1 more and you will never be happy. All right. So it's the same thing with uh, with leaders who are just here to to uh, benefit themselves. And they're not desirable leaders. The path the good religion must tread will not be an easy one. And all who follow it will need to dedicate every effort and the last reserves a resourcefulness to its cause. And this is one of the ways that like they're basically telling you that it, you're not going to really have true freedom in this life. I mean, we want the freedom to be able to pursue these things. Right. But whether you have the freedom to pursue these things or not, you're never going to be truly free until you cross that, that threshold of divinity, of the immortal life. The faint-hearted will have no place in it, for a cause so great will need the utmost sacrifice of persons and purse. And I'm going to wait to talk about the faint-hearted person because they're going to talk about it more. There are men who are vainglorious leaders knowing only outward and superficial values. Many such as these cannot even find the right direction or select the best path for themselves. Yet their vanity and ambition prompt them to presume their qualities of leadership. It, it, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but I've noticed a trend in the last 10 years that in, in much of the, the counterculture discussions like the, the truther movement and so on and so forth, that it, it's gone in a very much more spiritual um, uh, direction like when when the the flat earth started like almost 10 years ago now it was very almost like earth based it was very um just talking about physical uh physical observations and things like that and we would say yes this is biblical and this connects with the bible but now it's become much more metaphysical and you know we're going into these deeper spiritual things um we've we've changed a lot in the last 10 years but i i'm noticing all these uh youtubers and other ministry leaders out there that they they want they promote themselves as a very spiritual person what they talk about but i don't get the sense that they actually really like do what they talk about All right, I'm going to repeat myself here, but let's see where it was. Many such as these cannot even find the right direction or select the best path for themselves, yet their vanity and ambition prompt them to presume their qualities of leadership. Still, they may be no more to blame than those who support them and follow a road blindly. When men are half-hearted in a cause or indifferent about the achievement of its objective, they are denied a true leader. If the leader is blind, he and those who follow him will end up in the ditch. The true leader is a man to whom all who follow him can look up in every way. That's quite the calling right there uh, to have anybody who, you know, can be looked up in every single way where there are no true men capable of worthy leadership. And this is everyone pay attention to this. Strive to be such a man yourself. This is like, you know, you're in a, in a battle. Just pick up a weapon and fight. If, you're, if you find yourself in a battle, don't go around whining, complaining about how there's a battle and you're not doing your job. You just pick up a weapon and fight, right? Where no one is willing to accept responsibility or strive and be worthy of it, then take the initiative yourself. In this, there is no arrogance if you dedicate yourself to service and not self-esteem if you recognize your own shortcomings and limitations. And that's so important, recognizing your shortcomings and limitations. 
leadership and example are essential to the advancement of mankind and where they are lacking, there is certainly no wrong done in their establishment. The criterion of a good leader is his own integrity and intent. When support is needed for the cause, it will be no betrayal if the infirm, the sick, and the incapable remain inactive because of their inability to contribute anything. All right. So, you know, if you're in the, if you're in a crutches or a wheelchair or, you know, things like that, or, you know, there, there's probably things even you can do, but, you know, you're sick in bed. Yeah. Okay. Just get better. Their sincerity and moral support may be all that they can give. Those who will be blameworthy are the wealthy or those able to serve who seek exemption by excuses. The man who can give most in any way should be forefront. He should not lag behind or lacks in action. So obviously the more you have, the more you're going to be judged. And this just goes right back to the parable of the talents. I mean, they're all over this in Book of Wisdom and Book of Britain. Uh, you know, the person who is – this, this is probably a pre-existence thing. I mean, probably something to do with our former life uh, in, in the world above. But the person with the most – the more – talents is going to be expected to use those talents and they will be judged accordingly if they are not using them. It's like if you have money, if you have wealth, what are you doing with it? If you're not doing it to further the kingdom, help others, pay other people, give employment, right? That kind of stuff. 12, the good life. Life is not altogether a veil of sorrow, neither is it meant to be a grim, unending struggle. Man is born into the world to make the best possible use of earthly conditions. And this does not mean that effort should be concentrated exclusively on the achievement of spirituality. I really like this paragraph. Things must be kept in the right perspective and a proper balance achieved. It is unwise to let thoughts dwell exclusively upon the spiritual realm. And this was never intended. Only its reality and ultimate attainment should be ever borne in mind. Now, whenever I read this paragraph, I've you know read through this book several times now. And every time I read this paragraph, I'm reminded of the movie The Karate Kid. And I, I don't know why, but well, I'll tell you why. Uh, you know, Daniel's son in the in the movie, he's getting beat up by these jocks, you know, Cobra Kai, right? And he stumbles upon Mr. Miyagi, you've probably all seen the film, and he's like, Mr. Miyagi, teach me karate, you know. And so he's like, all right, show up tomorrow. I'll teach you karate. So uh, he he goes through day after day after day of like painting the fence, sanding the floor, waxing the car, right? You know, you paint the fence up and down, wax on, wax off. You guys all know the lines. And finally, he's getting really frustrated. And he's like, you're not teaching me karate. I'm out of here. And he's and he brings it back. Say, Daniel said he brings it back. He's like, you know, wax the floor, you know, and that kind of stuff. And um, or, you know, sand the floor. I mean, you know, that kind of stuff. And as he's doing it, you know, he's like showing all these karate moves. Right. And, and Daniel's just like his mind is blown. And he would never up until that moment, he was never able to make the connection between the, the physical world and the spiritual world and how they both are exclusively uh, the, the mortal and the immortal are both, you know, in a duality. They're both blended together. And so uh, the idea the entire. So in this analogy of you know karate which is a very spiritual pursuit the whole idea of of the martial arts is to benefit all of life right it's to intricate it's to blend into everything that you do in life for a complete balance right and so it's the same thing that if, if we're just looking at the spiritual realm and our head is in the clouds and we're not we're not grounded on the on the the earth then there's something very wrong about this 
as everything on this earth is intended to cultivate our soul and lead us towards the divine. That's another thing they just they say in like a hundred different ways in this book. Man is to make the most of conditions as he finds them and get all the happiness he can from life without the framework laid down in the sacred books. Not only must he make the best of earthly conditions, but he must also improve them so that more happiness can be gained. You know, it it's almost like the people on the side of the highway, like picking up the trash, right? Like, you know, this earth should be a better place when we leave it because we were here. That should be our goal, right? We you know you go, you go camping, right? And you, the, the, you make the campsite look better when you leave than when you arrived. You don't, you don't make it a worse place because you spent a couple days there. Though this may appear to serve only an earthly end, it is not entirely the case. For in the effort lies a spiritual development. Earthly conditions are not to be passive, accepted passively. For every man has a duty to make some improvement, however slight, upon the earthly state of things. And of course, as you're improving the earth, you're improving the your soul and you know the spiritual realm. Take you back to the you know the the paint the fence and sand the floor examples. While permitted to seek the greatest amount of happiness, man must bear in mind that the search must not extend beyond the bounds of his duties and responsibilities. When speaking, uh, when seeking spirituality and knowledge of the spiritual world, man must remember that there are limitations as to what he can experience. You can only, you know, you can only take it so far, right? You're not going to ascend beyond the firmament. It's not going to happen. The purpose of earth must and will be maintained with all its lack of stability and certainty. No mortal man will ever know for certain what the coming year will bring. The amount of spiritual experience and enlightenment permitted any man is just sufficient not to upset the balance of his life or nullify his earthly experience or existence. Excuse me. This is a fact which would be clearly understood by those ignorant persons who rail against the lack of divine intervention or guidance. In these times, mankind is not advanced enough for the divine veil to be any more withdrawn. And even in the greater light of the good religion, it will not be removed. Okay. So what it's getting at here is one of the themes, of course, in this is responsibility that you, you know, I have to be responsible for myself. You have to be responsible for yourself. And we can't blame Elohim. We can't blame the Most High. And there was a quote we read uh, some weeks ago where it said that, you know, people complain that there's not more intervention in this, in this life from the Most High. And it's saying that if that happens, then we would have God to blame. We wouldn't take responsibility for ourselves. A good example of this is what Paul says in Romans. He says, wherever the Torah is, uh, sin increases. Now, Christians will read that and go, see, see, it's proof of its It's like, no, 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 no. It's proof that you rebel against the Torah. And the example given is at Mount Sinai. We have an instance in history where Yahuwah, he comes down to the mountaintop and he makes his presence known there, smoke, fires, trumpets, pillar of cloud, you know, uh, fire by night, cloud by day. And the people there actually rebel against him. They become more rebellious in his presence than if he wasn't there to begin with. I mean, think about that. 
That's an interesting contrast right there. It's, it's, it's an irony that wherever there is righteousness, wherever there is the Torah, wherever there is the law, wherever there is Elohim, there is more rebellion. This is why the spiritual curtain uh, cannot be separated. We're here. It, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's like Paul, again, to quote Paul, he talks about the, the glass darkly. I think he's talking about the firmament. You know, we look up and from the top of the firmament, you could look down and it's crystal clear. You could see the whole earth from up there, according to multiple attacks, one of them like the apocalypse of Abraham. You could look down, you could see the whole earth. You could see all seven layers of heaven going all the way down to the earth. But uh, from our perspective, we look up and it's totally dark, right? It, it, it's for a purpose that Yah, he, he, he uh, covers himself in darkness. He covers his righteousness and his holiness. And um, we have to make do with what we have. But we're given just enough to get us there. We're given just the right amount of supplies and tools. And the problem is that we misinterpret them. All right. In these times, mankind is not advanced enough for the divine veil to be any more withdrawn. We read that. And even in the greater light of the good religion, it will not be removed. Hmm, it's interesting. So as the true religion, and again, I am under the impression this is the religion of Yosef of Rama and Joseph of Arimathea, that even as this expands over the whole world, the, uh, the, the divine veil will still not be removed. There will still be a mystery. There will still be darkness there. The two realms of spirit and matter, mind and body. So there we go. Material, spiritual, right? Uh, mortal, immortal must remain separated by a near impassable gulf, which can be spanned only by the utmost efforts. When the light of the good religion is given to the world, it will not be a world ready to welcome it or even ready to receive it. The world to which it will come will be a sick, disordered world reluctant to take the medicine, which will restore it to health. Now, what is the medicine? The, the medicine is Yehusha HaMashiach. Man, I wish I had that passage in front of you from the, from the uh, Aramaic Targum, uh, Genesis chapter 3, where it talks about how um, Yehusha will be the, uh, the medicine. In those coming days, the desire for the good life will have exceeded its proper bounds and for many become the sole objective. It will be a world of spiritual barrenness, a place where discord and disillusion has become lost in a doctrinal wilderness. Wow. With nothing more refreshing to offer than the waters of stagnant dogma. Like this is right here. This paragraph is just wild. So we talk about the good life exceeding its proper bounds. So we've already talked about boundary markers. And, you know, this, this gluttonous, this gluttony will become the sole objective, just this a desire to live this, this life of goodness. And they're going to rephrase this later on in the book. And they are, they've already talked about it, how this, this idea that man, the mortal thinks that the earth is here to serve him. And it's uh, actually, that's not the case at all. Um. It is here to serve him in the sense that it is, you know, giving him the proper tools to reach the divine, you know, life. But um, if, if a person is thinking about his pleasure now, he's, he has it all wrong. So this idea is that this, this world of spiritual barrenness, of, of disillusion, a doctrinal wilderness, man, that just reminds me of all the churches I went to. 
with nothing more refreshing to offer than the waters of stagnant dogma. You know, you just, they have these bullet points. You have to agree to these bullet points to go into their denomination or whatever. And even if they say they're non-denominational, they still have their bullet points. And, you know, like you got to believe in the Trinity, you know, you know, three dudes in heaven, you know, this kind of stuff. And, you know, there's nothing you can, the basic Protestant idea is that there is nothing that you can do. Nothing. You, you can't do anything good. It's, you know, all, it's all Jesus. He does everything. You just have to believe in that. You have to believe in the historical uh, person of Jesus that he died and resurrected. And you just believe that. And then of course, Yaakov or James would say, well, that's great. But even the demons believe and they shudder. So at least they're responding, you know, what are you doing? Right. Uh, and that's why we have the stagnant dogma. There's not, we don't see, the fruits and no, there, there's, there's some Christians out there. I don't want to dog all Christians. There's some Christians out there with some amazing fruit. All right. Um, that's just fact, but uh, there's a lot of stagnant dogma out there and it's just like a, like a swamp, you know, it's just, you, you're not going to grow good fruit in the swamp. What man needs, the good religion will be able to offer. But as man is always tardy and accepting what is good for him and seems incapable of diagnosing his own maladies he is unlikely to recognize the remedy. Perhaps the illness of man will then be too far advanced for the simple cure by herbal potions, and only the agonizing knife or cauterizing fire will affect it. They're talking about like gangrene here. You know, like you're you're so far gone that you got to chop off a limb uh, to survive. Meanwhile, wait and watch for the heralds of the dawn. All right. So again, the dawn, the dawn light, the illumination that is coming of this, this religion. The body of man is perishable and only a speck of dust in the great scheme of things. Yet men believe that the mighty universe was created solely to servants. Now pay attention here to what it's saying, because it's going to flip this. It's going to do something really interesting here. So men believe that the mighty universe was created solely to serve them. That's a, an error to fall into. Man, the mortal, sadly deludes himself by presuming to think he can bend all nature to serve his bodily well-being. As the fool, seeing trees and mountains shimmering in the waters, think their images are dancing for his pleasure. So man, while nature follows her destined course, believes all her activities only to gladden his eye and give him pleasure. Don't, don't do that. That's the wrong attitude. Now, I will say that I do find uh, images in the water, uh, reflections to be fascinating because the image itself, it's, it's kind of like it's an illusion. It's not really there. Um, if you were to, uh, if you can ever imagine yourself like you're on a rock and you're looking over a calm river and, you know, you see the mountain on the other side of the trees and they're coming towards you. If somebody is standing to your left and right, they're seeing a completely different image. They don't see your image, right? That that's the really fascinating things about images. That um, um, they're just so mysterious. Nature, like man, is intended to serve an end and purpose which far exceed any conceivable by mortal flesh alone. Yet it can be said with truth that the eternal universe and balanced nature exists only to serve man. Wait a second. Didn't it say the universe wasn't there to serve man, and that you're you know you're to think it does well let's see what they uh what they say that the the eternal universe and balanced nature exists only to serve man the greater being 
Well, there it is. So that's the duality. It's talking about the mortal versus the immortal. It is here to serve the greater man, not your mortal flesh. It's not here for that. It's here to cultivate you and to get you ready for a harvest, right? When harvest comes, you're going to be that wheat that uh, is able to like bow down, right, with the wind, but then come back up again. And um, they'll talk about that as well. Therefore, this being so, each man has a duty to recognize himself for what he really is and to do all that is required of him. He should strive to improve life, to supply something it lacks, and to leave the world a better place for having passed through it. I guess at the end of the day, uh, you know, this is why words can be such cheap currency. And people will say all sorts of things about what they believe. But at the end of the day, it's your actions. Your actions actually tell everybody else what you truly believe. All right. That in terms of, you know, like remember that DC talk uh, song back in the 90s, Love is a love is a verb. It's a good song. I mean, it, it is, it's, it's an action, right? So, uh, and the same thing with, you know, how you, um, you know, how you cultivate the life around you and all the things you do. Like if you believe that you are truly, uh, on a path to become a son of Elohim, like, you know, and you want to do everything you can to make that assured, you're going to hopefully live a life that is going to live up to that claim. Right. And if you don't, maybe you never really believed it to begin with. Maybe it was just a, one of those doctrinal statements that was the swamp, the bog. It talks about the stagnant waters that doesn't take you anywhere. The man who denies himself harmless pleasure is also a wrongdoer. <laughs> I love this. The man who denies himself harmless pleasure is also a wrongdoer. All right. Pleasure is not evil. It's not wrong. And he is a servant of evil. For such pleasures serve a good purpose and proper ends. Happiness is not a thing to be avoided. And enjoyments which do not harm are not to be shunned. These books talk a lot about uh, sexuality and things that make a lot of people uncomfortable. I mean, it doesn't shy away from it. And saying that, um, you know, pleasure is here for our enjoyment. Desires and ends which are good should be pursued, but bear in mind that the tree of desire will bear no fruit unless nourished with the waters of effort. Happiness itself is not an undesirable end, but too many pay for it with their contentment and peace. All right, so that line there about uh, the tree of desire will bear no fruit unless nourished with the waters of effort. I can't state this enough. When, when, Yahuwah is uh, talking in the Old Testament, in the Torah, about you choose the blessing or the curse. The, the Christian church hates this because it's like, no, I, you know, I choose Jesus. I get the, the blessing, right? That's not the way it works. You have to cultivate the blessing or the curse. If you live a lazy life, a life of entitlement, a gimme, 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 you know, this kind of stuff, I deserve this, um, you know, you're and you're not going out there to work for it, you're going to choose the curse. And so the, um, it, I love that the waters of effort bear the, the, the fruit on the tree of desire. You have these desires, these things you want in life, you know, you can go out there and work for it. You want a, uh, a wife and children, you can go out there and work for it. You want a house and a property, you can go out there and work for it. You know, you, you want the, you, you have these talents 
that you want to cultivate, you go out there, maybe the first job you get is not going to be in line with maybe your, your true talents, but you work towards it. And pretty soon you could nourish and bring forth the fruit of those talents. And one of the, the big things about this is, you know, going out and taking care of the poor, the, the needy, the widows and so on and so forth, the orphans. And, um, I've said this in the past. I don't need to repeat it again about how uh, I gave that story. I think the last two weeks about Yahusha and, you know, giving, you know, using your wealth to give to people. But one of the credentials uh, that I have uh, for helping people and um, some of you will know what I'm talking about is uh, if there are a lot of people out there who are infiltrating the, the Torah movement. Uh, I shouldn't say infiltrating, but they're coming into the Torah movement and they're demanding that we take care of them. Like they, 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 they flash the Torah and they're like, if you are truly a Bible believer, you're going to feed us. You're going to take care of us and that kind of stuff. And you start to, you meet enough of them and you start to find that these same individuals are going into all the different ministries and they're, uh, they're demanding things that they are entitled to it. They, we want your money. You have money. We want it. And we don't want to work for it. And, you know, they'll make all the excuses in the world. Um, and those people are always unhappy and so on and so forth. They're going bad mouthing ministries, so on and so forth. And they come into our ministry a lot. And my thing is, is like, look, I'm happy to help you, but you got to work. If you're not going to work, I'm not going to help you. You know, and it's different if you're like, you know, in a if you're a cripple, you know, it talks about that and you need to get better, fine. But if you can work and you can supply for yourself and your family, you need to do that. I can still, you know, it, it takes a while to get off your feet. I would love to help you, but that's a requirement. And in almost every single case, uh, they're like, nope, not going to do it. They just move somewhere else, start asking people for money. So those are people, in my opinion, that are choosing the curse and they don't get it. They're not going to get it as to why. Um, they don't have fruit in their life. They just think they're owed the fruits because they have a doctrinal statement. And that's not the way it works. It has been taught that the love of pleasure, we're on verse 11. It has been taught that the love of pleasure serves no useful end and that wisdom comes through pain. This is not true. For the spirit can also develop through pleasure for otherwise it would be an unjust world. Now, they love to contrast themselves in this because they talked earlier about how the spirit is cultivated through uh, chastisement, but uh, they're they're not saying that the pleasure is evil either. Not all school lessons are unpleasant, though all should be rewarding. It is nonetheless true that of all things man may do on earth to his benefit, the acquisition of spirituality is supreme. It is in fact the whole and sole reason for man's existence. There it is again, the meaning of life, guys. Therefore, while so, you know, there, you should find pleasure in life because you are spiritually uh, developing yourself and becoming more attuned to the spiritual world. And if you're doing this correctly, then you should be happier. You should be wiser. You are, you know, you are finding your purpose in life. The, the whole sole reason for man's existence. Therefore, while getting whatever happiness he can, he should never overindulge his body, bodily appetites and should shun the frivolities of life. So again, don't tip off in the other direction. There's nothing wrong with, you know, pleasure, right? But 
uh, that is a distraction as well. From It can be a huge distraction from the spiritual. These are earthly seducers, which leave little time for more beneficial things and become more demanding as they gain greater control. Such things as eating, drinking, sleeping, and the bodily union of man and woman are meant to be sources of pleasure when enjoyed in moderation for their proper purpose. They, too, can serve a spiritual end. The rule is moderation in all things. You've probably heard that, you know, a million times in your life. With consideration for the welfare and feelings of others and a complete disregard of anything which may serve the cause of evil. Do not fear the onset of old age. For though to the undeveloped spirit it may be the bleak winter of life, to the developed spirit it is the harvesting time. Old age is bodily preparation for departure to rebirth. It is the approach to the threshold of a new life. Another line I love. I love this right here. And you don't, you know, you you see so few like stories out there. You see such little focus on the elderly, obviously. Um, and you know, I I I hear all the time like you know people are like they don't want to grow old and that kind of stuff. I I do not fear growing old. That I'm in my 40s now. I'm going on my. I used to dread. I remember dreading my 20s like oh no someday i'm gonna be in my 40s you know what what am i gonna do then with my life i love it guys i love being i'm going in my mid 40s i can't wait to my 50s and 60s i hope i get to grow old with my wife and experience that with her and i mean i'm not old but i'm just in my you know i i guess 40s isn't even middle age anymore i think they bumped it up to the 50s probably by the time i get in the 50s they'll bump it up to the 60s or whatever but uh it you know it's a time in your life where hopefully you have gained wisdom, you have gained gnosis, and you are now prepared for your departure to rebirth. And, um, excuse me, um, I need a drink of coffee. I was commenting on this to my group earlier that I've now seen all my, of course, all my grandparents are dead, and I got to see my uh, great-grandmother as well. Uh, she died when I was a teenager. She lived a long life. And with all of my grandparents that, that died, there was, uh, they all lived to be old, age, 80s. Uh, my, one of my grandfathers died, I think, in his early 70s. He was a little younger, but uh, he, was, he lived a hard life as a construction worker. But uh, with every single one of them, they died kind of differently spiritually. And some of them were really surprising to us because we thought, you know, they were churchgoers their whole life. They were Christians. You always say the right words. And then as they were getting close to their, their death and they were getting closer and closer and closer, they started panicking and they started fighting against it. And they, they were scared and afraid. And they would start saying things that would really shock us, you know, like the things that were coming out of them, some honesty on how they felt about Elohim and other things like that. And we're like, what? Like, you're just now saying this? And they didn't necessarily die well. Uh, but then we saw others who, um, one of my one of my grandfathers, for example, he died beautifully. It was a beautiful death where every we, everyone in the family was sad that he died, but there was just this joy. I remember such joy at his death because they're like, he died well and he died praising the most high and you know that's that's where we want to we want to um get to that point where we are you know prepared for that, that final lap right we've been running a marathon that final lap you don't want to you don't want to fall to the wayside in that final lap you see the finish line and you you, you sprint towards it every man should earn his livelihood by service through toil or skill 
The man who wishes to live the good life fully must engage in all kinds of activities and trade and in various instructive affairs. Life to be properly lived must be balanced with a knowledge of many things and a variety of experiences. I, I, I'm a believer that you know everybody should be paid for his work uh, and uh, for his toil and skill. And I, I believe in hard work. You know, I, I'm a very, very, very hard worker. And um, uh, you know, yeah. So I, I'm. I believe that people should also be helped with aid who are are toiling in something that they are talented in, and maybe they need a little extra boost or something like that. And um, definitely. But if the, if a man doesn't you know work, then they don't they shouldn't eat. They they just shouldn't. Man must certainly engage in worldly and social activities for the benefit of his body, for its needs are not to be neglected. Still, always bear in mind that this is not the sole aim of life, nor the greatest. It's not the meaning of life. They they've said a hundred different ways what the meaning of life is. Only one aim or objective should be held always in view, and that is the perfecting of the soul. See, they keep saying, how many, how many ways can I say what the meaning of life is? The meaning of life is preparing your soul to become a son of Elohim, to reach its divine, you know, return to heaven. For, you know, you, were, you came from the sea of souls. You came down here to a world that, you know, looking through a, a, a glass darkly, right? It's a dark world that we live in, and you are preparing and perfecting your soul for the return to cross that threshold. That's the meaning of life right there. And everything on this earth is meant to serve that end, not your end, not you now, but it's here to be a tool to get you to that point. You've been given everything that you need to get there. The problem is, is we mis uh, misinterpret what those things are or what, what the aim is for those things. In this way, all activities became become praiseworthy and beneficial since the, I love this, I, I was thinking about this line all day, since the end lies not in the activities themselves, but in their objective. All right, so let me give you um, something that, uh, we, I, I've said this before, but my wife and I used to be, we were like closeted, closeted Disney park freaks. I mean, this was a long time ago, back in the day. I mean, nowadays it's like, this is before Disney was like unpopular like it is now. Like Disney, <laughs> like people are shutting the parks and the movies and all that kind of stuff. Um, but we would, we were annual pass holders at Disney World, at Disneyland. I mean, we would fly to Disney World. We were all this kind of stuff. Like we were like big. And, and that that is an example of something in here that it did not it was an obsession a pursuit that did not actually it was almost like the idea of the world's here to serve us right it was not leading us in a direction that was uh, purifying our souls and preparing us for the world to come um a good example though what, what i love about this is that um, all activities um um, the end lies not in the activities themselves, but in their objective. And so if we, if we are living our lives with this focus in mind, um, all the things we do should be leading us to that, you know, whether you're hiking, going on hikes, or uh, I, I love to go swimming. I, if I can get into the swimming lanes and just swim a mile, I feel so good. And I just feel cleansed and everything like that. Those are all good activities that lead us towards that objective. If a man has any talent and fails to develop it, he is unworthy of the gift. That's straight out of Yahusha's mouth, it seems like right there. And in due course must make an accounting. 
right? He's going to have to take an accounting to the, the his master who gave him those talents when and uh, be like, sorry, I was hiding it. I didn't lazy. I was on the couch. I wasn't doing anything. I was demanding people give me money. The man who does not continually expand the horizon of his life becomes stagnant within himself. The man who does not study and learn places himself on the level uh, – Place oh, okay. Let me. I, I read that wrong. The man who does not study and learn, he places himself on the level of the dumb beasts, though even they learn. <laughs> Saying that uh, a lot of the dumb beasts uh, will learn more than a lot of people do. The good life is a balanced, harmonious life and a life well and profitable, profitably lived. It is a life of many contrasts and experiences with a steady advance towards spirituality, if you're doing it right. All earthly goals, goals are elusive, and their attainment may not bring the pleasure and happiness anticipated. There is only one goal towards which everyone can advance with certainty and assurance, and that is the goal of spirituality. The very things which defeat earthly ends and render them impossible to accomplish are, if viewed in the proper perspective, aids towards the achievement of spirituality. Out of earthly failure and frustration can come spiritual accomplishment and gain. If you can understand this, the good life is yours. Uh, so, you know, the, the idea is that you have a lot of uh, earthly failure and frustration, you know, it, it's, you're, hopefully you're not giving up, right? It's it's like one step back, two steps forward, right? And you just, you keep, you keep moving forward and you keep moving forward and you keep moving forward and eventually you're going to get there. All right, I think we can probably get another couple of chapters done on this tonight. Uh, we still have about 30 minutes. And uh, for all of you still here now, I should have said this at the beginning, but for all of you still here, uh, we will be meeting at 9 o'clock tonight uh, at the after party in uh, the TUC Discord and just uh, talking it up. We're going to do that every single week. There's a link under all my videos uh, for Discord where you can come over there. And uh, we're going to make a tradition out of that. We, we used to do it on, of course, Saturday nights, but now we're bumping it to Friday nights. All right, chapter 13, The Religious Life, Stopping for a Drink of Coffee. I get the feeling that they're going to be rephrasing the same things again and again and again, just till you just, just beat into your head till you finally understand this. Religion is not something alien to the nature of man, but something which supplies a fundamental need. Just as eating is the response to an inner urge, so is religion the response to another. This may be one of my favorite chapters here, by the way. I really like this chapter. I probably say that a lot, but I really do like this one. It is only when religion in a particular form becomes insepid, ceases to nourish, that it is discarded. And then the nature of man seeks to supply the deficiency from another source. Without religious nourishment, the spirit of man becomes unstable and out of harmony with life. Unless the deficiency is made good, the whole being may disrupt into disharmony. The religious urge is as much a part of man as the urge to eat or sleep, though of a much more subtle nature. Some try to suppress the urge, and in such cases, the effects are no less harmful and apparent than when other surges are suppressed completely. Those with a little knowledge and wisdom often turn away from religion. But once they have gained much more, they turn back again. You, you, it's almost like talking about young people, you know, young adults, you know, men in their twenties, whatever. And 
they they break out of the house and they go out on their own and they don't have much knowledge or wisdom. They probably think they do. They probably think they know everything. They don't have that gnosis of wisdom. They haven't internalized it. And they, you know, they don't live a very religious life. They make a lot of sinful mistakes in their 20s. But when they start gaining more and more knowledge and worldly understanding and so on and so forth, they may turn back to uh, religion again. We saw that with uh, with Solomon as well, that at the end of his life, he, he turned back. Religion itself can therefore never be outdated or outmoded, though its earthly manifestations certainly may be. And so many persons, this will, uh, let me pause there. I, I, I seem to recall uh, the words of John Lennon. I think it was back in probably the late 60s, maybe after the Beatles broke up in the early 70s. It's probably the early 70s. I think he he said something to the fact that you know, Christianity was an outdated religion. And a lot of people were saying back then that you know it, it was going to be it was going to be done away with. But this is saying right here that religion itself cannot be outdated or outmoded, though its earthly mass manifestation certainly may be. We see a lot of you know trends within Christianity through the years. They keep changing in different forms of it and stuff like that. Um but they're all trying to grasp it, you know, this this idea, this truth of the immortal soul. You can't you you can't do away with those desires, like it's saying in the same way that you can't do away with eating and sleeping. You can't do that. You can it just it's ridiculous. It's never gonna go away. It will religion will always be here as much as people desire it not to be. Now, continuing with what it's saying here, and so many persons disillusioned with the image, right? The image of religion, the falsehood of it. They spurn the reality behind it because they're they're it's 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 like the, the phrase throwing out the baby with the bathwater. True religion deals only with the relationship between man and his divinity and is the stairway for his ascent. So if you're doing it correctly, it is understanding the, the narrow path that you are on that is getting you through that narrow gate. Of course, Yahusha Hamashiach is the um is the gate. He's the door, I should say. Too often religion is a quagmire into which the spirits of men sink and are lost, but it is the fault of men and not of religion. Each man has the religion he deserves and not necessarily the religion he needs. Wow. When it proves inadequate for his needs and he becomes disillusioned, he seeks to lay blame on the religion and not on himself. I have seen this so often with people who have walked away from the faith. They are blaming the image, the, the false doctrine that they see. I've I, there was a um, a, a woman about two three years ago now. Uh, she was a kind of a social media friend. She was in my ministry, and she was a Trinitarian, and. She wanted to write a paper because she knew I wasn't a Trinitarian. And she wanted to write a paper uh, and deliver it to TUC, the Unexpected Cosmology, on proving why the Trinity is true. She asked me in advance. I said, sure, that's fine. I'll, I'll be happy to host that. I'm not a Trinitarian. She knew it. But I'd be happy to host why she believed the Trinity was true using scripture. And um, as she was investigating, she was writing the paper. Her whole world came undone. And she realized that the Trinity wasn't true. And she started freaking out and she would call me up and she's like, everything I thought was true was a lie. I'm like, well, you're being a little overly dramatic here. You know, like just because you're, you have the image wrong, I didn't use that word image, but just because you have that wrong 
doesn't make the truth behind it wrong. And I said, you know, you're throwing the baby out of bathwater. She actually ended up leaving the faith because she disproved that the Trinity was true. She didn't know what to do with herself. She walked away. I couldn't believe it. I'd, I'd never seen something like that before. Um, so it, it, again, it's, it's what it says here, you know, you, you have to blame yourself. It is, it is your lack of knowledge, your lack of wisdom or whatever. It's not the religion's fault. It's, it's you taking authority for your own life and, you know, being responsible for your own, uh, all the, the lies you believed, right? You, you believe these lies, you believed all these, um, this misinformation or whatever, right? Religions which nourish weakness of character and ignorance in men have been destroyed by those same failings and are no more. I don't know if that's true. They keep springing up all through history. But the religions are no more to blame than those who serve them. I would agree with that. If a man put to sea in an... Uh, there are some religions out there you hear that are so crazy. And I'm like, some of these have to be like intel and they're all filled with spooks. I mean, like I, I wrote a paper on Jim Jones. I'll be giving a presentation probably out eventually. But uh, it's like, there's no way those were real people in there. Um, there's <laughs> no way. I mean, maybe there were a few like people, like sad souls who were really in there, uh, surrounded by spooks or whatever. But yeah, there's a lot of crazy religions out there. Like, how in the world is this a thing? If a man put to sea in an unworthy, uh, unseaworthy boat, can he blame the craft if he be cast into the water? Still, man is never abandoned, and somewhere there is the religion he needs, though he may never find it because of his spiritual indolence. The religious life is not one of ease and indolence. Need okay, now let me just back up here on uh, talking about the religion he needs. Some of you will read into that, that um, this is like, kind of a universalism, you know, just pick whatever religion you want. I really don't believe that the writers of this book would be saying that because they're talking about all the worthless religions out there. Um, and, but I, but I would say though, that when we're looking at all these different uh, church denominations, uh, a, a lot of people are, you know, moving to Missouri and those uh, places to find congregations of like-minded people. And what I have found when I go out there and I'll invest, what I have investigated, I find that people go out there and they have a, like a midlife crisis and just, they're like, it's not what they expected. You know, it's not the same like-mindedness people, uh, what they expected. And I say this because there are, we can point the fingers of, you know, all the different denominations, you know, the, the Seventh-day Adventists and the, the Baptists and this and that and this and that. Now, you guys know that I hold the Torah to be true. Uh, but uh, within all these different, you know, beliefs, uh, with these different denominations within greater Christianity, they're all kind of grasping in the dark for an understanding of the truth, and they're not going to get everything right. And I think that there are um, religion, uh, denominations out there where people feel more at home. They feel like that is more of where they need to be. So uh, if they can find that spiritual growth in there, that they can cultivate their soul in there, then they're in a good place, uh, you know, to prepare for crossing that threshold. If it is holding them back and it is stagnant, then they need to get out of there. I think that that's trying to sum up, I think, what they're saying here. The religious life is not one of ease and indolence, neither is it something to be undertaken half-heartedly. Too often, an old man who has wasted his life in worldly excess and scorned religion suddenly becomes converted and seeks to imitate the religious life. He imagines he has become good because he performs acts having an outer appearance of goodness. However, he is no more than a hypocrite. 
The truth is that his abstinence from wrongdoing and conversion to the religious life are directly related to his declining bodily powers. Such men generally become so self-righteous that they readily forgive themselves for their past deeds, which, after a shallow repentance, are quickly and conveniently forgotten. They should read what is written in the sacred books and learn how much more is required of them. So th this appears to be talking about like, you know, kind of like almost like the deathbed confession type of thing, right? Where uh, someone may live an atheistic life or a horrible life or a sinful life. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, I'm dying. Well, I guess, you know, I'm just going to uh, repent. And this passage right here, I don't know what to make of this because it, it seems to be kind of overgeneralizing. Uh, a lot of people do get to the end of their life and they realize that they, they look back at their life. They realize it was all in vain and it was all these, you know, pursuits that were worthless and they see the truth and they do turn to it. That happens a lot in uh, on deathbeds. One of the, the greatest examples of that would be the thief on the cross. Now, Personally, I think that the thief on the cross is taken out of context a lot. Uh, I'll be, you know, have people attack me for that, but it, it's almost like people use that as this ultimate example of you can just, yeah, just on your deathbed, just convert, you know, just just say the right words, you're good to go. And it's like, ugh, I think something else was going on there. I think something more than meets the eye was going on there, especially this is since this is the son of Elohim being killed. I mean, murdered and brutally beaten and crucified by the Yahudim who are rejecting the son of the most high, the, the very person that they've been claiming to worship. And, uh, and so you have this guy on the cross who's like going against all of that and actually having the gall, the, the, the bravery to stand up. Well, he, he was standing. Uh, <laughs> he was hanging, I guess, but he was kind of standing uh, and, uh, and declare who he was. I, I think that that was like a very unique example um i don't think that it's I, I i really i kind of i kind of um i guess i guess i'm relating with this passage here what it's saying i don't want to overgeneralize but um there's this idea that, yeah, that you can just live whatever life you want and on your deathbed you just you know you repent and you're good to go and i think a lot of people have something else coming when they do that but of course yah is the ultimate judge i'm not the judge Religion is man reaching out towards something greater than himself and attempting to express an indescribable glory revealed just beyond his grasp. It is man's search for greatness, the recognition that he is more than mere mortal flesh, and above this is a divinity towards which he may aspire. Devotion is not a state of servility, but it is actually an attempt to return to man's natural condition. It is a seeking for powers which, though once possessed, have now been lost. It is a search for the truth concerning man as he really is in his whole being. And so it says right there, what we have lost what we were. All right. We have lost our divine self. We were pre-existed. Something happened. We don't really know what happened, but something happened that we are in a state of rebellion. Actually, you know, it's interesting. I, um, I'm going to mispronounce his name. I apologize. But um, um, Origen. Um, one of the early church fathers, and I know I'm talking about one of the early church fathers, he had a really, he had some really interesting things to say. And he actually believed, of course, he was really big on pre-existence. He actually believed in reincarnation. I did not know that. One of the early church fathers was a huge advocate of reincarnation. And one of the things I love about the early church fathers is that they could say like some wild and crazy things. I mean, they could be far reaching in their views because the church yet hadn't come into this 
you know, okay, you got to have these doctrines, right? You got to, you got to check the box on these things. They didn't have that back then. And he talked about how uh, the, uh, that even the demons and the, the different spiritual creatures, as well as the gods, he, you know, believe in multiple gods uh, and, uh, and angels that they, they, every single one of them had, were in a fallen state. Even the angels that were serving in heaven, they were in a fallen state and that everyone um, was in our pr present predicament, either, you know, you're a human, obviously, uh, or you could be a demon or an angel and that everyone is in that state because they have to work out what they did in the previous existence. Really interesting. Incense, fire, candles, and ritual cannot increase the glory of the divine. Certainly they may benefit man and increase his sensitivity, but he should not be hypocritical about their effect or insulting. All right. So um, <laughs> I used to do that like in my 20s. I used to like light candles and stuff and sit in a dark room, burn some incense. I'm like, oh, I'm so spiritual right now. And it's like, no, 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 you're, you're being insulting. Like, uh it, it, they're there for tools to increase your sensitivity to the spiritual world. But uh, yeah, don't, don't like overreach that. The sacrifice of bird or beast, the offering of gold and jewels may assist men, but in no way do they benefit the divine. Right. And that, that's like straight out of the book of Isaiah right there. Yeshayahu, that uh, he like the most high became just totally just insulted at this. He got sick and tired of, of all the feasts and the, the, the sacrificing and all that kind of stuff because people were not uh, being led in the direction of the circumcised heart at all. They were just doing all these things thinking they were something great and they weren't. All the divine asks from man is wholehearted self-dedication to the fulfillment of the divine design. I, I, I full-heartedly agree with that statement. That's all he asks from us is wholehearted self-dedication to the fulfillment of the divine design. The worshipful ritual and devotional acts are the manifestation of man's desire to take an easy path. They are no more than an interlude in his daily life, the acknowledgement that he owes some sort of obligation. The sacred books should be read often and diligently, for they are the uh, repository of knowledge and transcending that which can be gained by the senses of men. The divine knows your heart your intentions and inclinations, and therefore does not expect you to make the study of the sacred books too wearisome. The divine knows that some are sick while others are handicapped either by a life of movement or a life of restraint. Others are so tied up in the struggle for the cause that they have little time for reading. Many have to depend upon the li uh, literacy of others for the learning. Therefore, even one section at a time is enough if it is studied and meditated upon." It's, you know, just the idea of, you know, one day at a time, one step at a time, little by little, you know, you know, one step back, two steps forward, right? But you'll, you'll get there. Prayer is an exercise of the spirit. It must never be misdirected and cannot be used to change natural laws and effects for the sake of the one who prays. So this is separating prayer from witchcraft, right? You're not... <laughs> You're not trying to change the natural laws of the universe for your benefit. Always pray in a place proper for prayer. And I, I love this line, what's about to come right here. Those who say no place is especially holy because the divine is everywhere may discover that they are unable to find the divine anywhere. 
Prayer is little understood for it raises the worshiper above a normal state. It is a state of being wherein man loses himself in the spirit of divinity. To those great souls who know the true nature of prayer and its highest expression, it seems a miracle that after losing himself in prayer, the worshiper continues to live in the flesh. True worship, however, is not prayer, but the devotion of a life dedicated to the fulfillment of the divine design and the preparation of the soul for the crown of divinity. I'm not commenting on some of the stuff because it's just, you know, it's just, again, they keep saying this over and just all these different ways. How many different ways can we say this? Repentance from those who have been doers of wickedness and then repent their deeds or confess the wrongdoing when dying serves little purpose unless some recompense is made by the death itself or by other deeds. More repentance alone cannot reshape the soul. So, you know, I love though where it's connecting here, recompense and saying like, if you're truly repenting, then there's recompense, right? It's not just this good feeling you have, you know, on your deathbed or whatever. Like I feel good because I, I'm sorry. It's like, no, no, no. If you're truly sorry, you're going out to the people that you have wronged and you're, you're making amends. Worship and devotion require effort. So unless specific times are set apart for reading the sacred books for worship and dedicated service, no time will be given to the divine. Too often, men devote all their time to the affairs of the body and completely neglect the welfare of the spirit. You see how they contrasted that. They said, look, some of you guys, you, you have to get out there and you work. You're going to have less time to spend in the books. That's understandable. Uh, but then you also have to be – now they're flipping it again and saying, look, you have to be responsible for this. Like you can't just – you can't live in this imaginative existence where you're close to the divine and you're not spending any time with them. You have to set that time aside. You have to get there and learn the discipline of praying. And, and of course, reading is a discipline, too, uh, to be able to sit there and just read and read. And it takes years. Ignorant men stupidly stir up many cares and troubles. They confront themselves with pointless problems and add unnecessarily to the burdens of life. They increase the number of trials prescribed by their destiny. They indulge in futile forms of worship and waste time in worthless ceremonial they delude themselves by placing false values on their offerings. They fast and mortify themselves without gain. They go on time-wasting pilgrimages and seek new shrines. But from all this, they derive little spiritual benefits. Religious rituals and ceremonies are brought about by desire for the mutual sharing of religious experience. So as words cannot describe the greater glories, which are inseparable from the religious life, the problems connected with belief and faith are no more than standpoints indicating man's limited means of communication. Therefore, let each man find his own path, and having found it, follow steadfastly through to the end. The many and seemingly conflicting doctrines which arise from time to time and in many places do, if inspired by the urge to spirituality, lead towards the same goal, the one supreme truth. They are like the many roads into the city, which convey travelers from all directions. This is one of the things that um, uh, has really comforted me. And I really like this line because you guys know that I love reading uh, extra biblical books. I love reading a lot of different books. I mean, right now we're reading a, it was definitely extra biblical. Um, we can all argue whether this is scripture or not. I don't think this is scripture uppercase. Um, but, you know, you'll, you'll come across things in books where, there are points of doctrine or beliefs that don't connect with something else in another book. And the canon people, one of the things, the, the, their mantras is that, you know, if there's one thing, one thing in a book 
that disagrees with the others. We got to throw it all out. And so they, they love they love that and they'll hold that there with all these other books. Go see, we can throw out all these other books. We're safe with our 66 canon. This is all we need. And it's like, well, wait a second here. <laughs> there are things actually uh, like in the four gospels. I mean, let's be honest. There are things in the four gospels that when you lay them side by side, uh, you know, they uh, they don't always line up at the end. And so like, it's like, what do you what do you do with that? Now, some people will fight me you know, to the teeth on that and say, that's not true. Um, but it is what it is. Um, but the thing is, is that you, you come to the understanding that these books in Colburn are really big on the fact of, of saying that people who write these, these, uh, books, um, these spirit led books or prophets or whoever, they need to be very careful about, uh, overstepping their boundaries that they need to recognize that they have these, these thoughts, these, they could be interpretations. The interpretations could be wrong and they need to be very, very careful about filling in details that are overstepping the boundaries. Um, so even though there are books that may, there may be details in it that may be wrong and you have to go, well, which one is right? They still, let me see if I get the line here. They, even if inspired by the urge to spirituality, they lead towards the same goal. Now, again, I am not a universalist. I am not telling you to go to all these other religions. Um, you know, obviously I'm keeping within the, the Hebrew faith, uh, but hopefully you guys get my, get the idea. Uh, it's one of the reasons I like being able to look at all these different books and, and being okay with things that maybe some things that don't add up into it. I still am able to push past that and see beyond and see that they are leading towards uh, leading towards truth. They are like the many roads into the city, which convey travelers from all directions. The conflict and discord between the many religions are caused by ignorance, by blindness in the material clouds of illusion, and by misinterpretation of basic truths. Rightly or wrongly, each man believes the road he travels to be the best and most direct. Now, to answer this here, uh, this is almost a direct line from the Book of Britain when Joseph of Arimathea or Yosef Arama comes over and he's confronting, I think, the, the head of the Druids. Um, it might have been the king of, of that area of Britain. I'm not really sure. And he basically, he challenged him and said, okay, we're going to have like a like a, a contest here of doctrine. And, and I'm going to throw my best at you, my best theology. You're going to throw your best at me. And whatever is the true, you know, we need to disregard some of your stuff that isn't true and some of our stuff that isn't true. And Yosef Arama is like, sure, let's do it. And he actually wins them over. And so, um, yeah, so uh, that I think that's kind of what they're, they're uh, referring to right here. Um, yeah. A true religion does, in fact, do no more than supply the medium whereby man works in cooperation with the divine. It is the means whereby the divine design is revealed and its purpose interpreted. Whatever goes into the makeup of human nature bearing the impress, uh, impress of divinity, whatever man does to unfold the divinity of his soul, that constitutes the religious life. I, you know, it, so again, back on the, the whole universalist uh, claim, and I've said this many, many times in the group, that... Um, you know, Yahusha talks about this. He, you know, he talks about with the separation of the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tares and all this kind of stuff that, you know, many people are going to, you guys know this, you know, many people are going to go and they, they're going to say that, you know, Lord, Lord, and, you know, I prayed in your name and cast out demons and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, depart from me. I never knew you. 
uh, you would say you workers of lawlessness. That's the important part there, right? There's there's fruits. There's got to be fruits of the spirit. There has to be an obedience to uh, his commands, right? And then there's going to be people that are going to enter the kingdom, and they're going to be like, they'll be like, who are you? Like they say this to the Messiah, like. It, it, and he's like, you know, you, well, you, you fed me and you like, you visited me in the jails and you fed me. And he's like, I didn't do any of those things. And he's like, well, to all those people you did to, you did it to me. And this idea that people who do are, I believe, are keeping his commands. They are living a life that is desires to keep his commands, but maybe they have been fed propaganda about Yahushua HaMashiach, or you say Jesus, whoever, they, they've been taught that he is a false messiah or whatever, you know, and, and they've never been able to push past that indoctrination. They don't have that, that you know, that uh, statement of faith that we're taught to have in Christianity. That's all you need, right? You just need the statement of faith. That's it. You're good to go. You know, don't, don't try to do any good on your own because then you're spitting on the cross. You know, it's got to be all Jesus. And, but you have people out there that are actually working to uh, to produce good fruit, to purify their soul, to to seek uh, that you know that divine union with the with our Father in heaven, and they're going to go and He's going to say, "Look, all those things you did, you did, you know, in my name, you didn't know it." I I do believe that. Um, that is that is if someone wants to call that universalism, so be it. Uh, I don't believe it is. I'm not saying that all all religions lead to um, lead to heaven. I'm saying that uh, Yahusha is a is a good judge, and he will he is the judge, and I'm not, and he will decide in the end who will enter the kingdom. And I think we're going to be very very surprised who makes it and who doesn't. The course of life is determined by destiny, so pay no heed to those who pretend to read futures in the stars, for they predict only riddles, and what they say may apply to many. No two predictions are alike, except by coincidence, and the planets have no power to, to, to determine what a man will become. The origins of superstition and false belief lie in the con conceits, and I think we're about to finish up here, guys. Yeah, yep, this is the last one, and we're going to finish up for the night. The origins of superstition and false belief lie in the conceits and presumption of man, but to an even greater extent in his mortal tendency towards deceit and hypocrisy. They also stem from his, spirit, his spiritual immaturity and indifference, for he tries to attain and understand, thing, understand things which are attainable only by the spiritually developed and interprets them with his inadequate knowledge and inspiration. Superstition and blind faith are pillars supporting the religions of ignorance. All right. I'm going to sum this up. I want to talk really quickly. Uh, in a few minutes, we're going to go over. Thank you, everyone, for coming out and supporting this live. Uh, leaving your comments, please like this video. Uh, and if you made it this far, then please, if you've actually made it this far, then you might as well subscribe to the channel if you haven't yet. Um, uh, but I want to just comment on this really quickly again on on those who are going to make it into the kingdom. And, you know, it, it talks about all the, the the ignorance out there and the darkness and the superstitions and all this kind of stuff. And um, there is, you know, because I, I want to be real careful. I always have to be very careful about bashing Christianity, though I think a lot of you understand because you have also come out of that. You have come through that that cyclical, weekly thing where you're just you're 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 not having your answers. You're being told not to be obedient. You're telling you know you're being fed lies and all these things, and you're you're trying to make this relationship work. And you have you know it's like that that phrase Catholic guilt. You have this evangelical guilt and all this kind of stuff. And you're told that if you don't go to church, you're an apostate and all this. And and it's just it's tough getting through all that. Um, 
But then you come over to a lot of us who've come over to this Torah movement. Um, I am finding the most, um, I've probably never seen so many hypocritical um, fakers in my life than I have seen in this movement. People coming over here wearing masks and they have, they have the Torah, you know, that's the same Bible that everyone else has, right? They're, they're, they're beating with, you know, Christians will beat you with the same Bible, but, and they you know, and they don't have a circumcised heart. I, I talk about this often where they, they have all these, they have all these things they check off. Okay. Well, this is sin and this is it and all this kind of stuff. And they, they actually, they, they, don't have that that recompense that 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 repentance. They don't have that repentant heart. You don't see that in them. And they're, they're, there's a phrase for this: Torah terrorists. They're they're awful people. I don't want to be around them. I'd rather be around a lot of the Christians. And I'm, I'm finding that even though the Christian, many Christians have been told that the Torah is. Some of them believe it's witchcraft, right? They they believe that you know you're spitting on the cross. You're not to obey that. You're not, you know, all this kind of things. You know, the sacrifice of Jesus is of to no avail if you if you keep the Sabbath day and it's like ridiculous, right? It's one of the ten, or, or if you eat, you know, if you refrain from eating pork, you know, you know, you're it's just the most stupid things. But they've been they've been fed these lies and they believe it a lot of them really believe it but you actually look at their lives and they are some of the most um uh excuse me uh giving loving um passionate people with fruits uh that some of them and just incredible people who you know i i think when they enter the kingdom you know and they're like you know, Yahushua's going to go tell them, like, you know, you, you thought the Torah was horrible. You thought that it was this horrible thing, but you were actually following it pretty close and you didn't know it. You know, um, I, this, I just, a lot of people, I think we're going to be surprised who enters the kingdom and who doesn't at the end of the day. And it's going to be Yahushua that is going to uh, judge each of our hearts. He knows our hearts. He knows the things that we do before we do it, and we knows why we do it. And that's one of the reasons why in our prayers we need to, uh, when we are being repentant, we are we need to say, search my heart and reveal it to me and show me my sins. Show me you know, what I am doing wrong and uh, give me the heart that wants to correct this, that wants to take responsibility for my action, the things I'm doing and the things that I'm not doing. And uh, and correct it. And uh, it, some of this is going to take years, you know, years to figure it out what it is to be a true woman, what it is to be a true man, what it is to be a true father, a true son, a true brother, and all the different you know things that the hats we wear. And it's going to take a long time. Anyways, with that, I want to thank everybody for coming out, supporting me. And of course, if you're watching this at a later time throughout the week, uh, you know, please consider joining us this next Friday night. Right now, our time slot is 7 p.m. Eastern time. I know that's a little bit harder for those of you on the West Coast. Um, you know, it, I may consider changing it, but I think we're going to keep it 7 o'clock right now. We're going to go over. I'll see you guys over in Discord, uh, the Unexpected Cosmology Discord. I drop links under all my videos, and you can go over there, sign in, come over to the after party, talk to us. Uh, good night, everybody.